everybody, and welcome to the 99th ever episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast, a podcast all about board games. No, that's it. That's absolutely it. My name is Quentin Smith, and I am joined, as ever, by Matt Lees. Hello. And today, in the studio, it's Ben, who is interning us. Interning, who is inside... internalizing you... Interning you, yes. Hello, the internet. Hello, Ben Winterton. It's uh, just like Krang being like, from Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles being in the in the chest of a big man. No, I'm internalizing you and Quinn, so I've got versions of you inside my mind now. Okay. As far as I know, this is a monologue. So. Okay. Well, that's interesting. Maybe this doesn't exist anymore. Maybe it's like we exist only in the mind of of Ben. I'm uncomfortable. I can't believe we got to 99 episodes. We now have a podcast that is officially worthy of having a flake stuck in it, which is an ice cream joke for people in the United Kingdom. (laughs) (laughs) You can look forward to more regional specific comedy later on in this episode. In this episode, we're going to be talking about some board games. We're going to be talking about We're Doomed, a game about being doomed and potentially killing your friends. We're going to be talking about For Sale, one of the best card games we've ever played. We're going to be talking about 2011 smash hit Alien Frontiers. Has it aged well? No. We're going to be talking about Woolly Wars. Uh, How would you two describe Woolly Wars? I didn't play this one. Carcass on for gangsters. (laughs) Okay, we're going to be talking about Air, Land and Sea. Another hot little card game, another sweet little hot box that and we're going to be talking about cerebria uh matt you've played cerebria i have uh and i will play it again at some point when i can find people who will play it with me i love this i love that your your board game review group has scattered to the winds well not entirely um just most of it i have got one person i play the board games with uh who's willing to play it again with me it's just about trying to find a time when our schedules align so we can just sit sit together and play a two-player game that might not be worth the time we need to put into it to get good at it to enjoy it but it's such an exciting box it is uh in many ways we'll come back to that in a bit i'm gonna kick this off by telling you two about a game that i played that you didn't and it's called we're doomed Mm. are we though uh well you are in this game so this is a big party game for maybe between like four and ten players Uh, all of you play the heads of state in the world and the world has got a big asteroid coming towards it. It's a party game with quite a heavy theme where, you know, you're all working to assemble a rocket that will save you. Not your people, not the world. Just a rocket that, like, the president of America and, you know, the commissioner of China or whatever can get into. So it's sort of like a Tesla thing. Uh, yeah, it's you're all sort of a little micro Elon Musks. I think, in fact, one of the roles you hand out might even be that you're not the head of a country, you're just the head of a corporation. That makes a lot more sense, yeah. This is a game from a first-time designer and artist called Mike Horton, who did that a creepy double threat of making a game and illustrating it and doing quite a good job of both, mm. which, which I find troubling. Uh, so the way this works, this is a real-time game. Uh, it comes in a small box, and most of the box is taken up by an enormous, beautiful, ornate hourglass. And it's a 15-minute hourglass, so you're going to flip it. you got 15 minutes of sand to build this rocket or wow. get out. Yeah, I, who knew that sand timers could hold 15 minutes of sand? I mean, it's more that I know that there's a consistent problem with sand timers in games and the fact that they're not all the same mm, games think, have to be tweaked around it yeah i think that happens more with like sand timers that run for like 30 seconds maybe i was wondering that's that's the point where i was like i wonder what the drift is on a 15 minute one yeah is I it still just a couple of seconds I or is know. it like a minute i will say that you're gonna be more con- you're gonna you've got more concerns in this game than just like whether your sand timer is accurate so on your turn you can either acquire um, parts which and once everybody's had a turn you can all throw parts into the game's box which represents you're all building this rocket together 
the number of parts when the sand runs out is how many seats there are on the rocket. So if we all did quite well and built a lot, there's eight players, we might get six people on that rocket. Great. The other thing you can do on your turn is to take influence, which determines whether you get a seat on the rocket. Right. Okay? So if a player just takes influence all the time while everyone else is building the rocket, you all start arguing. And this is one of my one of the things I really liked about the game. If you're bickering, and you will when Matt takes influence for the second turn in a row, you start saying, Matt, what? Well, you can't do that. And then everybody's shouting at you because you're talking instead of letting the next player take their turn. So bickering becomes a mechanic, which is actually pretty clean. It's like, guys, stop fighting and build the rocket. Yeah, but then it's like, well, shut up. I am building the rocket. Why would you tell me to do that? You took influence on your last turn. And then someone else yells at you to stop yelling. Sounds like hell. It kind of is, but also it's it's a very, very apt theme that it's, you know, it's properly like fiddling while the world burns type thing. <laughs> but then another mechanic you've got in this is that if a player acquires five or eight parts, the, these parts that you're throwing into box to build a rocket, you can on your turn instead nuke someone. You can spend all of those parts that really should have gone to the rocket and declare that you're nuking a player. That player is instantly eliminated. They're, wow. just, they're out of the game. So it's this curious thing of someone going, I'm taking parts, I'm taking parts, and they're all going to go in the rocket. And then during the rocket building phase, you go, I'm just going to hang on to these for another 10 more minutes. Then players go, why? But the nice thing is, is that a player can take influence over and over and over again, and someone can nuke them, and it's fine. Yeah, they would have got a seat on the rocket, but everyone in their country is dead. Yeah. And that way, both that player's wasted their time because they've just taken influence. The rocket's not get, getting yep. any better. And all the parts have been spent building a nuke. So <laughs> it's the best of both worlds. Everybody wins, question mark. Yeah. Uh, you know, I as a, as a high concept for a game and as a party thing that only takes 15 minutes, it was, it was pretty neat. It was pretty fun. Where it could have sank or swam uh, is this, it has this large deck of event cards which come out regularly. I think you can uh, acquire them on your turn. I, I forget exactly how it works. It's not particularly important. Big deck of cards. Uh -huh. Now, some of these cards have tremendously fun things on them. Like uh, you draw a card which says uh, it's like your um, sort of uh, nuke safety thing. Uh, you, it's a there is a button, a drawn button printed on the card, and you as soon as you get the card, have to put your finger on the button. If you ever take your finger off the button, I believe someone gets nuked. But and that includes if you do it accidentally. Oh gosh, it's uh, I'm really sorry I nuked your country. <laughs> I, I spilt coffee on my desk. I got distracted. I spilled my beer in the game yeah. and moved both my hands to do it, which meant the nuke went off. Yeah, which meant there's this weird thing with the system where like rather than pressing the buttons for nukes, you had to keep your finger on it, and we were supposed to get it fixed. <laughs> I don't know. Anyway, sorry, I'll pay for your funeral. That sounds interesting, though. Like, I find with that sort of game, there's often a bit of a tendency. Um, it reminds me, actually, of when people are writing essays as, as students, of, of people getting a bit too attached to the idea of word counts, of being like, well, we're going to have all these wacky cards that do things, uh, and, oh, there have to be this many of them. And then it means you get, like, 10 great ones and then 30, like, rubbish ones. So what's the kind of ratio like? Uh... Is it that? <laughs> yeah. Well, that's the thing, is, like, most games do that. It's really rare that you have little modifiers that actually work. I think in recent memory, the only game I can think of, but it's not a party game thing, but Quacks of Quedlinburg in terms of it having the daily events. Oh, All sure. of the daily events are interesting and fun and rather than just being a deck that you forget. Yeah, it's peculiar, isn't it? So uh, We're Doomed has maybe, oh god, it must be like easily a hundred event cards, which actually you don't shuffle. You're supposed to go through them in order, and part of that is that it, the game's different every time. But I think just, I was so excited huh. for ones like the button card, ones that did special stuff, and there are a few of them, but a lot of the cards in the deck are just just a bit thin, a bit weak. There's lots of text on them, which means yeah. players have to read a lot, which wasn't great. It's uh, interesting. Like this, I, I, Sometimes I just feel like, hey, just, just give them 10. Yeah, 10 really good ones. Yeah. And then, yeah, that might have produced a better game. Certainly would have produced a cheaper one. 
Yeah, it's tough to know. It's hard to sit down and go, I'm going to write a hundred interesting ideas and they're going to go straight in this game. It's pretty yeah. much impossible. Yeah. yeah, that's what we tried to do with the Monica's expansion we just did. Like, let's try and write 330 good cards. And, but I feel like you're hit right. We got there in the end, but it's because we wrote about 700 or 800. Right. Um, yeah. And then kill, 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 kill. And it's like, again, we come back to that thing where, you know, players think they want more they think they want you know 200 cards they'll pick the game with more cards rather than the game with less cards mm. when actually the game with less cards might be better because it just might have a higher standard mm. uh so yeah we're doomed was pretty it was interesting it was it was cute um and no one playing it had a bad time but it's not the kind of thing that we're going to uh be opening again or but it's a little box thing it's it's kind of big um because the sand timer takes up so much space <laughs> um, if only there was some way we could use technology to make tracking time smaller but it's uh, just not there <laughs> No way. Sand. I've also realised that my earlier comments about sand timers were just really idiotic. Of course, it's going to be pretty close to 15 minutes because sand is not... It's not like exponentially sand grows with the size of sand timers. What? So, no, it doesn't. Sand is always roughly the same size, Ben. I Revelations. I'll draw you some diagrams after Thank you. Done the there is no way... Hang on, not wanting to derail our board game podcast, but there's no way that's true. Sand has got to be, like, of different sizes. Well, no, but it's, like, all roughly the same size. Well, what's rough when you're dealing well, with someone? Because if you get like a really big bit of sand, it's a rock. I see. You don't go, well, that's a, that's a big bit of sand, isn't <laughs> it? You go, like, that's a rock. But your human eyes, Matthew, like the small, small bits of sand, you won't be able to see. So I think I think you, not to embarrass you live on the podcast, but I think you're seeing shades of bits of sand that you can see and going, that's all there is. You're listening to Sand Debate 2019. I, yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's an interesting point. If you know a lot about sand, I, then feel free to drop us a, a I comment. I was about to say the same thing. I sincerely hope there will be a comment from a geologist uh, on this podcast. Uh, please, geologist, if you're listening, this is Podcast 99. Uh, let's move on to talking about a game that we all thought was pretty great, uh, and so does the world, because it's been selling for about 20 years. Let's talk about For Sale. Yes. So For Sale is a game about buying and selling houses. The houses vary from a space station to a box, <laughs> and I've got to say everything in between, but that's, that's I was a big, pretty much... I was a big fan of The Shed. Yeah, The Shed is, is, is quite high up for yeah. what is undeniably a shed. Hey, in the grand scheme of things, I'll sleep in a shed. It's better than sleeping you know in I mean? a sewer or yeah. a tent. I mean, in just, some ways, I'd rather sleep in a shed than a space station. I was going to say, convenient exactly location. the same. I don't yeah. want to live in a space station. I'd be incredibly lonely. Anyway, so what you do each... There's two phases to it. So the first phase, you are going to be bidding for these different properties. And you each get the same amount of money. And it's about trying to maximize your values. So different properties will come out. And it's whether you think... I want to go all in and get the space station or am I willing to pay below the going rate for, you know, an okay house with a beach? Mm -hmm. Once everyone's got all their properties, then uh, a series of checks will be dealt out depending on the number of players and you're going to link your properties to those checks to try and sell them for the best price. So the highest check will go to the highest valued property, the lowest check will go to the lowest valued property. So your box is probably not going to sell for very much but if the lowest check on there is say $5,000, hey mm. you've sold the box for for $5,000. Likewise if you play your amazingly but not quite a space station house and someone plays the space station, you might sell your a Caribbean paradise yeah. for a couple of grand which is not very good it's not great compared to a box that's just gone for 10 grand it's a bit mm. like kickstarter really <laughs> um <laughs> <Ba -dum> tish <laughs> yeah no 
it was very interesting. There were so few safe bets in that game. Were there? I think that the most valuable property you could have was the, the level 30, which was the space station. Yeah, everything. There's 30 checks and 30 houses numbered 1 to 30. Yeah. So you know at some point there's going to be four checks dealt out or however many, depending on the players, and you're going to be able to go, well, look, if I've got the 30, I can definitely get the best check there. But after that, it's just a case of keeping an eye on what properties have already been played and trying to work out vaguely what the odds are. But then a lot of it was holding on to see if you're going to get a better round of checks. And then a lot of people sighing in the final round as putting down things they really didn't want to put down at that point for like a couple of grand. Mm. And I think the box and the space station and the the very cheap and very expensive properties are easy to work with because you save the cheap ones, the rubbish ones for when there's only good checks and you go, hey, I've made a bargain. But when you've got like, as you say, they're ranked one to 30. If you've got a 15, you go, "Uh, do I just try and get an okay one on an okay round? Knowing when to sell your average properties is a problem you've probably all encountered, but (laughs) can now encounter in game form. I think the thing about it, which I liked the most was the actual, the kind of nuts and bolts of the bidding mechanic and the fact that it went around in a circle and you always had to just to stay in the bidding for a property at the start with your money you had to just go one higher than the most current highest bid and wasn't it that like when you you get half of it back rounding up yeah the the it's it's fussy but it works very well it's horrible uh players all put bids in so i bid one you know ben might bid two matt might then bid two i bid three whatever when you pass you get the lowest house in that lot so if i'm the first to pass i might get you know the cardboard box we've been talking about but then every player who passes next then gets the next highest property and but as you pass you get half your money back unless you're the last player in which wins you the best property but then you lose all of your money yeah i remember now it's not that each bid has to be higher it's you have to match the current bid until all the bids are currently yeah, matched you can't, and then you, you need to go higher yeah exactly Something so you like match that. or higher yeah which means that you get like somebody goes three and everyone goes yeah i'll pay three and then it's like four and it's like yeah i'll pay four and then someone goes six and it's like ah. Uh... And then suddenly you have maybe three people who go, yeah, I'm in for six. And then like it gets to a point where like lots of people lose lots of money and mostly get garbage. But also you have wild rounds where somebody just decides, you know, I'm going to pay eight for that card. Yeah, so this is what I was going to say. A thing I love about For Sale is every play you make, every bid you make, every card you get or every house you spend, you get a check feels either really good or really bad like you know so many turns in so many board games like that was just a turn it wasn't exciting every turn in for sale is like oh i aced that or that was a disaster yeah and so it ends up being a very emotional game for everybody and everybody giggling as they keep screwing up or doing well and it gets around the problem i have with lots of auction games in the fact that it's not a cold hard mechanical thing of going well you can't let him have that property because it will build that set yeah and everyone you know there being an optimal way of being like well that is worth six and no more and no less etc it it doesn't work like that because then the draw of the the checks that you're actually going to use these cards with in the next round is just going to be completely randomized to an extent that really like you can basically get rubbish cards in the first round and still do really well if you're savvy or lucky this is the this is oh it's it, there's so many things to love about for sale uh and i'll yeah as i i reviewed six nymph to big video review because i actually prefer six nymph to for sale but i don't want that to take anything away from for sale it's it's just ace but yeah it's the way that you spend four fifths of the game acquiring houses and then very quickly you just you will blindly put houses in reveal and then suddenly you've done terribly like mm-hmm. you're you're building up to this explosive finale where if you do terribly it's so funny that you're just like oh well what the hell (laughs) it's good it's very good uh very strong box okay well let's talk about the game we played after for sale that was less good let's talk about 
classic game Alien Frontiers. Mm. So this is there's a weird sort of story behind this because Shut Up and Sit Down was going to review this when it came out in 2012. This is a, a game with a lovely uh, sort of uh, patina of 1950s sci-fi around it. You're all uh, terraforming and colonizing a planet, like in terraforming Mars. You're dropping these little cities on the planet. You're, uh, and then mostly you're doing this by rolling dice, which represent your ships. God help the people inside those ships, because you're going to be shaking them and rolling them every turn. And then the numbers that you get, you can then uh, do a sort of bit of worker placement. So that six you've got, oh, that'll go to the ore mine, because it'll get you a bunch of ore. Oh, the two, three, four you rolled, that's great. That's a straight. That can go to the raiders, and then you can steal stuff from other people. So we liked this a lot in 2012 or so, and we wrote a whole review of it. We were really excited to cover it, but then stock ran out. And then just through like ships in the night, finally now Alien Frontiers is back in stock and we've got time on the calendar and we were ready to review it again. But and you looked at the review and there's some decent jokes and you're like, my, my gosh, yeah, it's like, maybe uh, I can resurrect this dead script. It was like, uh, you know, the thing in Jurassic Park of finding <laughs> a, a mosquito in amber and going, we can resurrect this. Um, then we played Alien Frontiers and we chose not to review it. Again. So busy asking whether or not you could, you didn't ask whether or not you should. Exactly, yeah. So what did you two think of Alien Frontiers? I think it presents itself as a worker placement game, and the very quickly the main issue we encountered with it was when you're playing a worker placement game, there's an element of, I'm going to sit here and work out my optimum set of moves. So yeah. I'm going to put Johnny bus on the bus, I'm going to put Millie swimming pool in the swimming pool, whatever. And with Alien Frontiers, because you roll your dice at the start of your turn and what you roll dictates where those dice can go, you can't plan your turn at all. It was hell. Which, yeah, yeah quickly grinds the game to a halt. And in a lot of worker placement games, the progression is you unlock more workers, which mm -hmm. you do in Alien Frontiers. You get more ships. Um, I like the sort of strange mechanic of they have to be a matching pair, like it's like their little parents making a, a new baby ship. But then that makes the game even slower because as more people get more ships, there's more rolling to do and then more planning to do, but you can't plan until it's your turn. Yeah. It quickly turns into a space icicle. Yeah, it, it really did. It was surreal and it had some really lovely ideas. Like I love the idea in principle mm. of being like you place your dice on the board and then rather than it being like everyone plays their dice, then everyone gets them back. It just means that those slots you've taken up on the board remain filled until it's your turn again, which is really interesting in principle. It makes it a worker placement game where the board is three quarters full all the time. All the time, yeah, which should be good because it should just mean you've got less options and quicker turns. But in practice, especially as you, you start to develop skills and abilities within the game that allow you to change the numbers on die, etc., or evolve things, it just, yeah, as you say, you pick up your dice, you roll them, and then you don't know what you're doing, and you have to work it out. And also, because of the nature, even if you have the ability to change the dots and the pips on dice to a degree where you kind of... Because towards the end of the game, it didn't really matter what I rolled a lot of the time. I no. could kind of... If I wanted to do something, I could. But again, like, you couldn't even plan ahead with the basis of that, because the board was constantly three quarters full, and you wouldn't know which three quarters would be full when it got to you. Yeah, it's such also, a... Also, it went on forever. Well, we played it with a full four, which I would never do. No, I never again. Yeah, no, gosh. It, but it, it was kind of... I, I shouldn't have been saddened. I should have been happy that board games have clearly advanced so much in the last seven years that this game that I thought was phenomenal in 2011, 2012 now seems so slow and stodgy. It should have been a celebration of like, oh, wow, board games are getting yeah. so much better, so much faster. I think I just felt kind of sad, maybe just because it meant I had to write a different video review. <laughs> it was really interesting. It was um, it, it just weird that like the first half an hour, 40 minutes were really fun, but then there was a realisation that we weren't even a fifth through the game. And 
one thing we were speaking about decks of cards not doing anything earlier quinn's very early invested in technology which we were all like okay this is going to be the game changer this is and he got a memory crystal which we we (laughs) mercilessly ribbed him for it's basically a space usb and we're like oh i'm sure later on in the game it'll come into its own and it never did like there was all these upgrade cards that basically do nothing it just comes down to just persevering and pushing through the game well i can confess something now on the podcast which is that i i think i definitely came last in that game but the reason why get ready is because i was playing so poorly because when i rolled dice on my turn as the person who brought the game and taught it and who was very aware that it was too slow and people didn't want to play it when i rolled my dice like about a third of the way through the game i stopped crunching because it was much more important to me to just get the dice out somewhere no i had the same i was just like roll put them down didn't you win no oh okay i think ben won Oh well, yeah, no. way to undermine my victory by saying you, <laughs> neither of you were trying. I think actually, I, th- I don't think anyone was trying except no. Ben I think actually the other player had like left the room, no, and we were just right. pretending they were there, and yeah. we kept getting Ben to look the other way because we thought he'd be upset if we he just, noticed. We kept telling him that she was in the toilet. That yeah. Was, yeah, yeah, and we did that thing of like just turning our head away and putting a hood up and going, "No, don't look at me while I'm rolling my dice." And then it was it was very difficult and awkward. I will. It was almost problematic. I will. <laughs> Matt, a win's a win, and it's going in the book. No, I mean honestly. <laughs> I do that I do that with like so many games it's not even like a lot of games I just go with my gut and don't crunch and still win so whatever no but, uh, Matt is very good at gut gut crunch uh, yeah I was just going to say before we move on because this is a storied game which has had like five editions and it's got progressively pretty through each new edition which I like I, I really like the the pulp 50s art I, mm. I really did enjoy it it felt fresh it felt different yeah there was there was stuff to like about it and um, I think for me it's like an interesting piece of history in the fact that it came out not that long ago in the grand scheme of things but it was one of these strange things that took the kind of slightly dry worker placement genre that had been around for a little while and then like shook it up with some different mechanics and some like American style gotcha of like being able to steal resources from other Mm. players but obviously that stuff at the time those sort of mashups between different styles of game were very exciting whereas now you just go hang on a minute like me and you just Ben, we just wasted our first three turns, I think, just stealing resources back off each other. Yeah, we made each other's turns completely redundant, yeah. which, which is the feel sort, satisfying. Yeah, sort of thing where like games that now have these sort of gotcha mechanics kind of have ways to stop players from just stabbing each other in the throat back and forth mm. pointlessly in a way that isn't good for anyone, but also not bad for anyone. Mm. So yeah, I feel obliged just to point out the cities you place are tiny little coloured biodomes which is so incredibly satisfying to look at and touch I love them they're a gorgeous miniature it's like so it's got a plastic city on a in a circle I wouldn't say they're gorgeous I think they were like they look like something you get free in a box of cereal (laughs) (laughs) you know what a gorgeous box of cereal Uh, touche Matthew I agree I love them I'm I'm hugely in love with them let me paint an image in the in the listener's mind imagine if you will a small plastic circle with a small city on and on that is a plastic dome on top so it looks like the city is under a dome in a bubble yeah no they're cute they're really cute I love them so much would you just would you say they're gorgeous no okay (laughs) (laughs) really shonky and, <laughs> and kind of ugly but i fell in love with them i didn't so hard not to let this derail us completely but i didn't understand in the game you because you said you loved them while we were playing alien frontiers and you said like it was something like oh i'm sorry i love these or i'm so embarrassing but i love these it's like i, I didn't understand where the shame was coming from because they're quite ugly okay right well <laughs> moving on let's talk about another old game that's gotten reprinted recently and you two can tell me 
if you thought it was a good idea. Let's talk about Woolly Wars. You're throwing us under a bus of whether or not we think this should have been reprinted. <laughs> yeah, no, just let me know whether you think the people involved in this business decision were, were good, good or bad. Good, good, <laughs> good or people bad. or bad people and or the, somewhere and in between. And then it'll be sent immediately to their homes for them to be and judged. And they're here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> well, they be cancelled. Uh, Woolly Wars is interesting. I can't really talk about it much because we just played a really quick game of it. Mm. And to be honest, uh, we did rattle through it at a, and we did really accelerate the end because it was like we were gonna you were turning up and we were gonna play some other games and quince can never see sheep no no that would be terrible we we can't let that happen again but woolly wars effectively is a tile placement game whereby it's tile placement with a secret identity where the idea is you're all putting things down and you're all building pens full of different colored sheep and then at the end of the game you each player scores the biggest enclosure of sheep of their color but everyone's color is secret at the start of the game so you have people just going okay and collaborating together on this big kind of um grid of of forests and fields and sheep but then you have people like you know someone might go oh we'll put that down there it's like oh it looks like they're being, making a big blue enclosure very interesting and what twists it around is you get wolves and if a enclosure is adjacent to a wolf in a forest all the sheep in that enclosure become useless so mm-hmm. if you think you've clocked what some color someone is you just put a cheeky wolf down and all their sheep get eaten which yeah. means there's an incentive to go oh i'm 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 red look i'm putting all these red sheep yeah. down but then they all get eaten and you go haha i was the yellow shepherd all along yeah it's there's there's some interesting stuff and i tried to do that with uh, with you i was like oh look i'm building yellow sheep but then actually i just helped you in the game so i'm not sure how much that's a, <laughs> a valid tactic but uh yeah no it's interesting the fact that you can you can ruin other people's big fields, but then you've also got hunters, which can be placed in the same woodland area as wolves, and that neutralizes the wolf. But once you've got a hunter in a wolf forest, you can't add new wolves. But I think like if you've got a, a forest with two wolves, you need two hunters to... So there's a, it's like there aren't many rules to it. The only fiddliness comes with the, the secrets of the way that the wolves and hunters work but also at any point in the game you can reveal that you are whatever color you are oh really yellow red or blue and you do that by going aha i am this type and then you basically you flip over your tile to reveal it and you have a special tile which is just square on all sides because it's like matching little triangles usually of Mm. colors basically get a square where it's just a hundred percent the color of your sheep and you get to play it and then immediately play another tile so it means you can just be like bam bam i've finished my big field the shepherd comes sprinting out the barn and opens his coat and five red sheep come out yeah and then it's like for the rest of the game everyone knows what color you are etc also there's the fact that i didn't mention this when you're and we didn't really get into the swing of this to be honest but when you're playing uh wolves or hunters i'm pretty sure you can just do it at any point you just interrupt you can and it it can be ridiculous the idea of someone wandering out to the field and going oh where, where should i put my sheep and you just come sprinting over the fence and go the yellow sheep were mine all along yeah so you can do i think you can have your reveal at any point and also i think you can suddenly plop a hunter or a wolf down on the board at any point even if it's someone else's turn so when they're going oh i think i'm gonna put this you go stop i'm putting wolves here 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 and yeah, it, I kind of want to revisit it because it seemed bonkers. I'm in love with any game that sort of combines like turn-based gameplay with like out of turn sort of interrupts and it keeps it fresh and it keeps there's all other than the thing of just sitting and waiting for your turn. 
yeah, there is that constant, if I do this, is someone going to interrupt me or, you know, waiting to drop your own interrupt. Mm-hmm. I think the only other rule we didn't talk about, which isn't, I don't know if it's always applicable, but when we played with three, you can swap with the farmer that's not in use, I believe. Oh, yeah, I think it's maybe, I mean, there's there's a bunch of little wild things in there that are, that are quite interesting. And it's also the fact that you, when you play Hunters and Wolves, you can say, I'm going to play three Hunters and two Wolves now. So if you've got loads yeah, in hand, yeah. you can just suddenly drop them everywhere. Um, the one thing I would say, and it was kind of a, it may be a deal breaker for me, frankly, is the fact that it advises you in the manual because these little tiles are double-sided and you can use either side of them. It advises you to kind of cup them in your hand. Um, and so you can like flick, cup them in your hand so you can secretly look and flick through them. Like it's a tiny dossier file of like cases but wait so unlike carcassonne you're not drawing a tile and placing it no you have a hand of tiles how many well you get (laughs) new tiles every time you place a tile on the board for every adjacent edge that that tile is touching so up to four but usually two or three or one you then get to draw more tiles which means you get to a point quite quickly where you've got like maybe 12 or 13 or 14 tiles in your hand and you're basically just like flicking through them as if it's like men in black and someone has accidentally shrunk, shrunk a big dossier. So, um, uh, but it, it is genuinely a bit of a problem because... It's awful. Because imagine you've got 12 tiles and there's uh, 20 on the board and you're trying to work out where to place, but each of those 12 tiles has two sides. So you can't even look at all the tiles and go, I need to look for all the blue sheep. You need to go, right, I need to keep track of which of these has so many blue sheep on the back before placing. You need some sort of, I don't know, mirrored suspension device to see yeah, them all at once it's 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 odd in the fact that basically it's not just that you're trying to flick through whilst looking at two different sides of all of these different tiles it's the fact that you're looking for really specific combinations mm-hmm. like you need yellow to the south blue to the east and and yeah it just it it's fiddly to the point where like yeah you can interrupt at any point and do all this wild stuff but if it was a card game that might work better, but as it is, like we didn't really have any of that because everyone was just basically struggling to try and keep their tile secret whilst fiddling with them. And uh, yeah, it's it's. I kind of want to try it again, but it seemed to me to be a really interesting game with some really interesting rules that was just like absolutely hamstrung to some degrees by this very strange dexterity puzzle that you play on your own wow. and is not fun. Oh wow! So there you go. Time to talk about another good card game now. It's time to talk about the game that all the cool kids are playing. It's time to talk about Air, Land and Sea. Oh, baby. Which Ben and I have been diving into the sea, wandering around the land, soaring through the air. So this is a small box uh, World War II card game, uh, except the fact that it's World War II isn't enormously important. Not really. Uh, like I was a bit turned off by that as a theme, but it, 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 it matches the theme well. But yeah, you don't need to know anything about the World Wars. Well said. Let's all have a moment of silence for the World Wars. No, we don't need to think about the World Wars. Okay, fine. Well, you do in this game because what you've got is you and the other player are going to be sat uh, across from three cards that say air, land and sea. The game also comes with a deck of 18 cards, which are air, land and sea cards numbered one to six. So there's a one plane, which is bad, and a six plane, which is a heavy bomber or whatever. Of these 18 cards, in you, when you play a round, each player will receive six, and six more will be left in the deck. So you know you've got six of these cards, you don't know what your opponent has. On your turn, I love, look, Ben, look, I love this, when Matt closes his eyes so he can imagine he's, the he's game. He's visualising the air, the land, and the sea in beautiful unison. I'm dusting my mind palace. Okay, so you're going to, on your turn, play one of these cards to one of the three theatres, okay? So maybe you play your big uh, bombers in the air theatre, so you've got now a strength of six there. 
throw over to your opponent. They might play a card in land or sea, face up, or you can always play a card face down in any theater, at which point it's got the number two written on the back. So all cards are value two if you improvise is what that action is called. So players will go back and forth playing their cards. Lots of the cards have special powers like an ambush, which lets you flip a card face down. So someone's big six can be flipped into a two or one of your face down cards can be flipped up and then it uses its power because you don't just get a card's power when you play it. You actually get it when you flip it as well, which can lead to fun chain reactions of I'll play this card, which flips this and you use that card secret power to flip your card or whatever. At the end of each player playing these six cards, you see who has won two of the three battlefields and then that player wins the round and gets six victory points. But... Uh, and I'm not going to use the phrase burying the lead. There is also on your turn... Buried the lead at sea. Uh, no, you're not burying anything. In fact, you are running away. This is the amazing thing about air, land, and sea, because on any of your turns, instead of playing a card, you can instead withdraw. You can look at your cards, you can look at the battlefield and go, mm, no, 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 no. And you just stop, and then you reset the game, and your opponent gets less victory points depending on when you withdraw. So the way that uh, Ben... It's you, a GG mechanic. Yeah, it's it's GG, but it's so... For those of you who don't uh, know what that means, uh, in video games, often they will end matches early by just someone saying GG and then leaving. Very very common in StarCraft, etc. When you go, you know what, I've lost this. We don't need to spend 20 minutes with you chasing my single floating building around the map. Would uh, that it was that simple, Matthew. Because what? the thing that makes Air Land and Sea so fun is that you never fully know you've lost. This is when it gets that's getting really sexy because you, you can look at your hand and you think, oh, I, I think I've got this. I'll just stick in for one more turn. And your opponent just like neutralizes another row of cards and you go, oh, damn but maybe I've still got the... It's very difficult to actually read the game, so it's not GG, or if it is GG, it's GG said through gritted teeth of like, GG, I'll get you next time. Uh, it And it's just, it. it's a marvel. And even when it is GG, like sometimes you open two very strong cards and you think, hey, this combo, and you look at the, hands in your, the cards in your hand and you say, this combo is so incredibly strong. That's six points in the bag. And after your second card, your opponent goes, nah, this is, this is rubbish. I'm, uh, I'm running away. Yeah. So it, they, it totally undermines your powerful victory. But also it means you avoid that thing of there being an inevitable outcome to a round where it's clear who's won and you're just going through the motions of having to play all the cards. You just you know move on to the next round where again since it's randomly redealt there's no carryover as to oh you won the last round so you've got this advantage mm. it just means each round's a, a, a new a new so battle in the context of a war game it's kind of horrifying because it's your generals that don't want to win battles your generals that want to fully destroy their, you you want to lead them into a, a sense of you know, if you've got amazing cards, you want you want them to stay in the fight. No, that's like, but that's exactly what generals do. Like, if you, Quentin, are you suggesting that war is is bad? I'm <laughs> suggesting that generals do what they have to ruddy do, Matthew Lee's. Uh, Surely it would be better if everyone just kept running away forever. Well, yeah, no, that is true. But this is where Ben and I had to grudgingly admit that the World War II theme does work really well. It's right. a sense of um, wanting to retreat and pull your forces back from this battle that you've probably lost, mm. even though people on the ground might be like, "No, we can still do this." You, as a general, go. I just don't like the odds. Mm. But what's lovely is that the opportunity to withdraw makes, I swear to God, every single turn in Air, Land and Sea interesting. Because every turn you're asking, you know, what does my opponent have? How, how much is this on lock? And excellently, if you do choose to withdraw, that's a feel-good moment for both of you. Because if you withdraw, yeah. you're going... I'm smarter than you. I'm not going to give you any more veeps than I have to. But because, they get some points. But they feel great because probably they didn't know they'd won. You know, when your opponent withdraws, it often comes as a surprise to you. You're like, how am I going to get out of this? And your opponent goes, well played. <laughs> and you're like, yes. And it's interesting, really, to then have, and, and you know, 
it's interesting to have a war game where morale is a thing. Yeah, that's... Because a, you can completely just psych people out. Well, Ben, it's like you were saying, you were just saying that um, uh, if you play your two big cards, then your opponent might withdraw. Or, if you play your two big cards, does that give the impression that you've got a combo that you don't have because you're trying to scare your opponent into withdrawing? And it's, yeah, it's very evocative of actual combat. The idea that they go, oh my word, there's their super battleship coming that that's just a write-off and likewise as you said earlier you only have to win two of the three arenas which gets quite as you say it can get quite morbid thematically the idea of going the the air's a write-off let's (laughs) let's leave you know those lads to get shot down stop putting fuel in the planes boys yeah waste of money and uh and yeah and you just go look it's it's about the war not the not the battle so yeah you got to focus on the other two it's and you know even for a world war ii game uh the art is i find quite sort of um uh peppy and pulpy like there's a lot of sort of explosions going on in the backgrounds and uh, i I don't dislike counterpoint counterpoint get the Advance Wars license from Nintendo. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, I mean, since when did Nintendo give licenses to say, anyone? You'll have to prize that from their cold, dead I hands. I don't know. We'll not get it, but borrow it. You know? I'm, I mean, we. it'll be the Mario board game that comes first. When the, I guess, oh, they do license, like, they Mario Kart Monopoly. They do license things. They do. Yes, that's true. Just saying. Just saying. Anyway, yeah, it's 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 a heck of a thing. It's it's consistently interesting, and also as a two-player game that you're going to play over and over again. Yeah, because of the design, it's quite easy to establish a meta where mm. you know certain cards. Like if you do X Y Z, then your opponent retreats, so you don't do X Y Z, and then you mm. play with someone new and they play differently. It's just it's it's tight. It's it's very very small. It's it's lovely for what it is. Yeah, and it's it's not a game that takes a long time to learn. A lot of sort of games that rely on decks of cards. And obviously each card is unique is, oh, I'm going to have to learn them all. But you don't really have to. Like, even learning 18 cards isn't particularly difficult. But even without doing that, you go, well, I know what the strength is and they're going to have some effect. So, you know, you can very quickly get a feel for what is a good play, what is a bad play. And you've got just that right balance of because... Uh, six cards sit out and the other 12 are in players' oh, hands, yeah. that you go, there's a 50% chance they've got the card that's going to completely ruin my right. strategy. I love that. I love that the odds of your opponent holding any card that you're not is always all, 50%. It's always a coin toss, yeah, which is, again, super clean. That is very neat. And another thing I get stuck on is just that simple mechanic, which we also saw in uh, Shot and Totten or Ranagnitsia's Battle Line, is just you need to win two of the three battlefields, you know? And that is... It makes things so tricky because... I always found that I was thinking of like, oh, if I play this card for this power or such, that that sort of occupies the top of my head. Then there's, should I withdraw? And then below all of that, there's, when am I going to win? What, like, which of these fights is my opponent trying to win? Mm. And the joy you feel when you know you're not going to play anything into C, and then every boat your opponent plays into C, you're thinking, oh. I really like the idea of that establishing a meta and trying to trying to trick people into staying in fights, etc. Like, oh, it's amazing. Th- that reminds me again, it goes back to playing stuff like StarCraft Online before I actually understood what was going on. Because for those of you who haven't played something like that, there are all sorts of different techniques which people will use and different strategies and tactics. And after you've played the game a bit, you recognise them and you go, okay, this is happening. And you know then on a scale of one to screwed exactly where you are. <laughs> but before you know that, you just think, what's going on? And something weird's happening. You're like, what are they doing? And then you you still carry on and you still come going it until you realise either it's fine or you are now like fully in a trap that you can't escape from. My issue in terms of my playing of Air Land and Sea is that I will always i have to play everything face down and go when well, when quinn's flips it face up oh boy is he in trouble and he goes <sighs> he well doesn't. i'm not going to do that because obviously your best cards are there so 
yeah. I'm just going to attack you normally. My yeah. the issue I get stuck on is um, you might be wondering, Matthew, how can one player always win two of the three fights? It's because one of the player wins ties, but the ah. but the other player gives away less points if they withdraw. So you constantly have this seesaw thing where one player is more likely to win, but the other is more likely to withdraw. So ah, to mimic the kind of like who's on the offense defense. I mean, sure, as if, with if, the most popular war in the world, football. <laughs> I yeah, sure. I mean, I'm wondering now if you could retheme this with football. But I think you could retheme it with loads C of things. Football. Air football, <laughs> all the football. Hey, why not? Why not? It's it's absolutely great. Uh, if you're interested in Air Land and Sea, uh, I would say by all means uh, hunt out a copy because it's it's the most impressed I've been by a small box since oh, I was going to say a while, but it's been such a good summer for small boxes. Like it's, it's you've been impressed by it, and that's saying a lot because of how many small box games. That's you've been a playing. nice way to look at it, isn't it? Next up on the tour of My Mind Palace, we have Cerebria, a game of imagining the inside world with um, a real emphasis on the word inside. Cerebria is a game which is basically area control and it's designed to be played as a team game, 2v2. And it's good emotions versus bad emotions. Now, right off the bat, this is not a good representation of the human mind or the human (laughs) psyche or anything. You're like telling that. me this this big Kickstarter board game fails to entirely simulate the human psyche. Yeah. Yeah. For those who are new to uh just some sit down that is Quinn's being sarcastic about Kickstarter. <laughs> <laughs> um but what it does fairly manage to represent is a knockoff version of Pixar's Inside. Okay. Uh, which is a story about... Uh, is it a little girl? I think it's a little it's a girl. Little yeah, girl. she's like a teenager, a young teenager. Okay, a teenage girl. I've seen this film, amazingly. Um, I remember there's a clown in it, What Made Me Cry, but that's about all I remember. No, I remember that there's a big central control bit in the middle, which has orbs that all feed into a machine, and the orbs are different things, different emotional memories, etc., that can be something something it's kind of vague and silly and it's a story about a teenage girl and her the idea are being, we talking about inside here or cerebria inside okay i think it's inside out just for oh, pettiness sake. i thought it was inside it's inside out isn't no it? i'm getting mixed up with the game inside oh so am which I. Is, you don't want to play that if you're in the mood for a weird nice cheery pixar time i'm just going to be a dynamic comment section i'm just yep, going to chip perfect. in and correct you in a petty way and then what else say nothing else help it's me be- out it's better than being corrected after the podcast yes is live. absolutely inside out and around this little self-control mod module that basically does all the memories there are all these different uh whimsical realms like memory land etc or whatever like ancient things and really it's not supposed to be a world that has a solid structure it's all just a mechanic for examining emotional development in a child and a teenager and looking at these things in a mad whimsical pixar style adventure and it's a great film i really enjoyed it Mm. what this game does is it has a similar idea of having this big board with all these different locations um, I think one of them might be like the Willows of... of <laughs> I can't remember the names of them specifically, but they have ridiculous names that are all like realms of the mind of different things. And then you have this centre bit, which has all these gems in it and has five or six orbs that rotate. It's an absolutely mind-boggling thing. It, it really does Ironically. look... Yeah, it, it looks like a game you'd see people playing on Star Trek, but not like on the Enterprise, on like one of the sex planets they go to. <laughs> like, 
the sort of thing where it's like it's amazingly colorful it's sort of half the game is this dark purpley blue and the other half is an orangey yellow um to represent obviously miserable emotions and happy emotions and then basically yeah you move around these nodes and you you plant fortifications to give you more control <laughs> matt, matt you can you can admit it's it now like, have you not played cerebria are you is this like <laughs> are, are you just inventing a board Listen, game last right night now? i had this really vivid fever dream of what cerebria must be like i was about to make fun of you for like using the word nodes and then you use the word fortifications and i just lost it it's bonkers it's actually bonkers learning the game is hell it's like pulling teeth out of your bum it's I, 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 like I, the manual is about 36 pages long i had somebody who's um a, a girl called scarlet who was doing some work experience for me for a couple of weeks and i <laughs> gave her the job of learning to play this game you monster and she, i didn't realize how bad it was i gave her the manual and it took her like two and a half days of reading the manual and watching online videos of how to play the game. And then we sat down and I said, right, you're going to teach her how to play. And she kind of couldn't. And at the time I was like, well, you know, she's quite young. Maybe it's a difficult task to learn and teach this caliber of game. Whatever. I didn't think about it too much until I sat down to try and learn the game via the manual and discovered it was actual hell. It's, it sounds like, I mean, I'm, I'm going to, I'm currently playing it. Well, I'm currently trying to find people to keep playing it with me so I can review it. But, um, Cones of Brainshire is the only thing that keeps coming back into my head. And the fact that it's this insane, insane thing that is just constantly going, well, of course, this manipulates this, this manipulates this. And it, it's just unbelievably fiddly and complex. Uh, there's a part in the manual which goes, oh, you know, there are 10 things you can do on your turn. In addition to these 10 things, there are these three things. Three auxiliary and finally, things. finally, this thing. <laughs> it's like, well, there are 14 things you can do then, aren't there? And I think really what hammers home the problems is the fact that none of it really feels linked at all to the setting. Yeah, it's easy to forget, isn't it? That like one of the things that themes do is if you have a playing piece that's a man and you can move that makes sense because yeah. um, a man can move or whatever whereas if you are in the realm of imagination then yeah hmm. so like you're playing as anxiety and i'm anger or like you know you're you're um cheeriness and i'm <laughs> positivity i'm getting these wrong but and i'll explain why please in a minute. tell me someone can really be anxiety yo you can yes 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 although anxiety as i say like it doesn't it doesn't represent that well i don't oh, you know, are, you, it, are you worried about how well it represents? Because if that's the case, maybe it does represent well. No, I know what you mean, but it's it's a difficult thing in the fact that really what it's trying to do is it's trying to like be a game where it's like a kind of war control game between positive emotions and bad emotions. And even within that, it's sort of like immediately sort of stepping into the realm of like mental health, etc. In a way that I'm like, I didn't really get bothered by it, but I could immediately... The reason I didn't get bothered by it is because I was like, well, it's nonsense. This is nonsense. We've played some other games recently. I, I can't remember, and I don't want to name drop it anyway. But we've played some games. When we play games these days that basically use mental health as a mechanic, it's usually... A, a bit of a yikes from me just because it's something that like is an interesting topic that can be talked about and should be but when games just use it as color it's like well maybe jog on and the it's, thing it, it's not particularly thoughtful for people who might if you have depression as a ooh, cool sexy mechanic in your game people who really really struggle with depression maybe you're not really thinking of what yeah, the game would be like, like for them and also like you can use these things but don't just just don't 
get it wrong mm. or pointlessly. Often it's it's used in like a horror tropey way of being like, oh, this person's really mad. Um, but in this, it's just like whatever. Like there's there's no element you know it's an area control game where you lay down these cards and you level them up with one of the game's two types of economies and then you you rebalance to see who's in control of the realm but also who's in control of the frontiers on either side of it just, <laughs> i feel like i'm losing my mind just explaining it it takes about an hour to teach and again this is the thing the, the really unfortunately the the unfortunate hammer for me because there's a lot of things about it which are really cool but the the nail in the coffin for me is the fact that it's a game where it's like hey you should play it with four people two on each side i've played it with four people and only one of the people i played it with had any interest in playing it again ever um so now i might for the purposes of review because we only played the basic game there's, oh really the full game which adds more rules and i already feel like this game doesn't need that but it also has like deck building before the game and i feel like maybe if the game is gonna sing it's gonna do so when you're playing with all of the rules. Is there like a sort of a glimmer of something super interesting behind all this rules crunch? Maybe. I'm not confident about it, but I'm obviously willing to give it a, a fair shot mm. uh, to see what happens. I think there's some fundamental stuff about it that doesn't land, and I'm not sure if there's anything that can be done by that. I mean, also, you know, the fact that there's no interaction between these emotions in a way that's interesting. Like, you know, if you had, like, anxiety as a thing, and if somebody puts down a card which is, like, worry, which I think is one of the cards... There's honestly a big problem with this game is that because they're trying to make a game that is all about a realm inside the mind, it means it's a game with lots of different potential cards you can play that all do different things, lots of different interlocking mechanics. I quite easily go as far to say as too many in this game's case. And then everything has a name or a title, which is something to do with the mind or, or um, positive emotions or mm, negative emotions. Mm. And it just means you it's just nonsense. It means you've got like vibe tokens. You've got like the emotion. <laughs> like it's a sort of thing where you can just jamble together three or four words like, oh, the emotional matrix like flipper. And I'm surprised that's not a, a mechanic in the game. But it also means that like even just building a deck, like building the, the suggested basic decks took me about half an hour and was a puzzle in itself because you're like, oh, I need... Uh, cheerfulness and it's like oh no it's like oh no that's that's positivity or happiness and it's like all these words are just synonyms of each other so you have like three or four cards that are basically in your mind they're like so similar that you can't remember which is which and there's no they haven't even got any interaction of being like you know worry can be countered with like um with calmness or like you know like um hopelessness can be countered with hope it runs closer to word salad than than truly exploring how these things would interact there's no thought about it like they could they'd, they'd be better being just like horsemen or, or not even that not even like horsemen and archers because then you might have a game where you think well hang on surely the horsemen are effective against oh it's a this. horseman and owls yeah like it's like a red horseman and a blue horseman it's it's just there's nothing that sometimes when you play a card it will have an effect which might be loosely themed to the idea of like that emotion but for a game which is basically an area control it's an area control game where rather than being like soldiers and tanks it's like quibblings and flibblings and, and that, just... that, that sounds like the worst like if you've already got a game that just mechanically has a billion rules not making any of those elements distinct yeah sounds awful oh no it's it's quite hellish um i'm not gonna lie like it's basically like it's a complicated area control game that is then obfuscated by the fact that all of the terminology is kind of similar and at the same time indistinct and that sounds very reductive as well like coming back to inside out very briefly like 
one of the key parts of that film is when a character who only experiences joy tries to solve a problem where someone is sad by just trying to be happy at them, which mm-hmm. doesn't work. And the idea that all emotions are either positive or negative is quite not true isn't like, that yeah. the main takeaway of that movie is that sad things can become happy in time and... yeah or sometimes it's important to be sad because yeah. you need to kind of get over things like the emotion of regret yeah that's this doesn't make you feel good but it makes you learn something I'm, I'm, whereas i'm imagining well, this is funny because in the manual it has a bit at the end being like ah, oh, you know coming to terms with this the interplay between these two sides is like an important part of being a human it's very like it's very, very kind of like lovey heart, hand on heart. But then it's like, but you've made an area control war game about good, like positive versus negative. So, so it's, 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 about, like, it's about learning to balance them, but there can only be one win. It's like, but yeah, but you got to try and win. It's it's sort of really bizarre thing, and it's I'm I'm you know I don't I feel like it's going to be one of these things where I'm hoping I can find more interesting things about it, but it's something where there's so many elements which are like really interesting examples of do not do this in game design. Um, that I feel like I want to talk about it, partially because, you know, it's a game that's 6,000 copies of this exist in the wild now. You know, it's the Kickstarter backers. I, maybe maybe that's not true. Maybe there's less than that. Maybe there's more than that. But it's like this exists in the wild in a way which many board games could only dream of in terms of, you know, the quantities of that there. And um, it's just fascinating. It's clearly a labor of love, but it's not... It's not a well-made one in many, many ways. And um, I don't know, I, I kind of feel like for a couple of reasons that it kind of bothers me. Um, and I think one of the main ones actually is because whenever you see it, people go, oh, I love the theme, I love it. And it's like, I think people really need to remember when designing games that yes, you know, it's great to have a game that isn't just an area control game of orcs humans, but it's not just as simple as just picking an interesting theme and just sticking it on a game. Yeah, if you may, if you pick an accessible theme that was most recently popularised by a, an all-ages family movie and then make it a super, like, hardcore, you know, complicated war game, then are you saying that that might sort of attract the wrong crowd and lead to disappointment? Well, I mean, I don't know. It's such a massive box and it doesn't necessarily even look that welcoming in terms of the art. It's not, like, cheery and rounded. In fact, it's kind of weirdly scratchy and grotesque in a way i can't quite put my finger on but it's more that you know if you're going to try and make a game about battling emotions um the only way that's going to hang together and feel like it works is if you're looking at the cards in your hand or looking at things and being like well obviously this is going to counter this and actually getting people to think about emotions but i'm what i'm saying is if you make an area control game and then make it about positive versus negative emotions just because you think it's a cool idea then what you've actually just made is a game of synonym soup whereby you're trying to contend with complicated systems whilst also just completely being unable to remember the names of anything to the point where just playing the game felt like parody i mean consistently during the game people kept going oh and i go yeah of course you can do this you can activate this and obviously after that this rotates it's not complicated like <laughs> it just it, it feels like you're just inventing rules when you're just explaining the game i'm relieved you say that you kind of want to review it for the sake of all the copies that are in existence in the world you know those six thousand backers will have got their copies they will have extended the print run by another few thousand or however many yeah um because i have never ever looked forward more to one of your reviews than this <laughs> review of Cerebria. We want to see you suffer, Matt. Is That's kind of it, yeah. It's, it's fascinating because, like, you know, it's difficult to find good groups of people to review stuff with that are frequent, and we've talked about this in the past, but it's, it's hard when you've got something that just isn't exciting or interesting people, and actually some people just never want to play it again. And to be like, okay, who's going to come and really rinse this with me? Yeah. And I'm going to do it, and it's it's going to be interesting. Um, but yeah, I have lots of conflicting feelings about this sort of thing. And especially because 
Um, there's so much love for interesting themes, and that's definitely something that we've promoted in the past as well. Um, but there's not a lot of thought to does the theme actually fit the mechanics? And also, there's the weird thing we're seeing with Kickstarter of people feeling like, well, it's fine for me to back this thing on Kickstarter because I'm going to get my money back because you know the value of these games retains. And um, I don't really want to be the person to cause these sorts of things, but we are due uh, a market bubble crash in this regard because this system of people spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars on these massive big box games because they know it's a safe investment because they'll be able to sell it for the same price is not sensible. I just think it's a super niche game. It's like really complicated, really fiddly. If you're into that sort of thing and you've got three friends who are really into it, this could be a game. I don't know. I'll try and find out. <laughs> but it could be a game that you could really rinse and really get into with that tight-knit group. But for me, it's like, gosh, where would this fit in my collection? And I just, I can't see a universe in which it would. Ooh, put your hand in my mailbag. It's time once again to reach for the gaping, oily maw of our mailbag. Matt, do you have the device? Yeah, I do. I've actually got most of the oil off of the maw at the moment because it was kind of ruining the letters. Um, here we go. There you are. There's a letter for you. Oh, God. Okay, right. Hang on. Okay, uh, this is from Dave from St. Louis, Missouri. Hello, Dave. And Dave says... I'm sorry you're a miserable man, Dave. Uh, Dave says, hello, shut up and sit down. Hello, hello, Dave. Hello, Dave. <laughs> we should do that with all the letters, shouldn't we? I'd first like to say that I had the opportunity to play Blood on the Clock Tower over the weekend at Geekway to the West in St. Louis, Missouri. All right, Dave, don't bang on about it. Uh, Dave says, when both games ended, first with evil winning and the second with good killing the imp, there was raucous applause from both sides over a game well played and deceptions well decepted. I would like to know what games have you all played that have had these wonderful moments of high end game energy? Keep up the great work. Dave from St. Louis. Missouri. Thanks, Dave. Why does he keep having to go on about how miserable he is? Um, I I actually think Blood on the Clock Tower is one of the prime examples for hidden identity, actually, just because in the, the first game I played with you in it, I... I had to keep lying my hardest right up until the end. It's where an hour of lying. Yeah. Mostly you get to a point where people just know you're bad and you're like, okay, there's nothing you can do about it now because you're dead. Um, whereas having to lie so consistently to lots of people at once because they can still cause you trouble is really interesting. I think oh, Escape from the Aliens from Outer Space was a bit like that as well. Yeah, hidden role games in general, any game where you can sort of go around the table at the end and everyone can be like, I was the thing. You know, I, obviously we love Battlestar Galactica, uh, you know, the the one of the big parents of hidden role games, but that is a game where you know who the silents are. It doesn't have that fun reveal, you know. And that's that's the beauty of it. The number of times I play uh, Avalon, which is the sort of rebrand of the Resistance, where someone turns to you halfway through the game and they go, I know I can trust you. It's everyone else I don't trust. <laughs> and then at the end of the game, you go, I'm, I'm sorry, you made a terrible decision in trusting me is, is always incredibly satisfying. Yeah. I do think this is really important though, you know, because it's, Matt taught me something about human psychology, didn't you, Matt? Which is yeah. that humans tend to, I mean, at some point, I'm sure you did, but... But deliberately or just by observing Matt? Have you it was mostly something? by being punished by his, his deceptions over and over again. No, he told, you told me that the humans tend to remember the beginning and the end of something. Ah, the so primacy recency effect. Oh, what a cool boy you are. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I do think it's really important for board games to have that exciting ending. I think a lot of board games are exciting at the beginning. You know, they're blank canvases and no one knows how the game is going to go. And so many of them have endings where you tot up the score and, you know, somebody won and you maybe have a forced bit of applause or if it's a two-player game, you'd shake a hand. Yeah, it's why I'm all about games where working out who won takes very little time. Mm. E either that's a means of you've been counting the scores up all the way 
way through the game and you just add on a few at the end. Or like Woolly Wars, we talked about earlier, you just score the biggest enclosure of sheep that you have that haven't been eaten. Yeah. Which means like after it's over, ending it after that is super fast and easy. Like, you know, Sheriff of Nottingham, you basically need an app. And I love that game, but the scoring at the end is just, it doesn't, it doesn't work in the way it should. But scoring as you go can also take the energy out of a game. Like yep. if, if you go, well, the last hour, this person's like 90% likely to win. We'll go through it. And it's it feels like a completely redundant exercise because you know who's going to win. So no one's interested and everyone's quite bored. And I personally love Kingmaker games. Uh, I have no problem with them. And the people I play with love them as well. Stuff like Inish of being like, okay, you know, the final turn is interesting and exciting because I can go, hey, you deserve to win this. You're going to win. And then some people are like, ah, dang it. And other people go, no, I'm happy with that. But obviously some people, their game groups just despise that and end up constantly circling the drain, trying to all individually win right up to the bitter end. So, I mean, the other game I think of that's a mechanic that actually works in this way is Skull, just because it is fun and exciting right up into the end. It's just that the end occurs at different times for different people. I think you're always so, with Skull, you're always so close to the end, right? So once someone's won one, they are halfway to winning the game yeah. and they could win it the next round. They won't, but the, <laughs> the, the the end, the victory is always so close for every other every single player that it never feels far away. And, and I, I think can, that's why. I, well, also, I can never get bored playing Skull because if I decide that I'm not really interested, I just play really, really aggressively and erratically and I either win... In which case the game's over. Or you're out. Or I'm out. And so I can never get bored. I can never get to a point where I'm like, is it over yet? That's what I love that in... Uh, well, no, that's a tangent. What I was going to say is for me, the games that have the best high-end energy, aside from hidden roll games, are really hard co-op games. Because I have played so many of those, whether it's, you know, Ghost Stories or Pandemic Legacy or other co-op games that I can't remember now because my brain is cheese. But when you beat those games, in Ghost Stories particularly, because the last thing you have to do is killing this enormous ghost, which is always a dice roll. It's always a really hard dice roll. That when players do it, every single time I've won Ghost Stories, the entire table has erupted into, like, screaming because they've been being punished by this game for an hour, and then they finally staved its head in. But not doing it is just such an anticlimax sometimes. Yes, like yes. Like, being really close and then not doing it is just like, oh... Or the occasional time where you're playing a co-op game and again, you just kind of have it on lock. Maybe you get like the right cards come up or whatever. And again, it comes to that foregone conclusion of you, you've overcome this thing, but you kind of go, well, yeah, of course we did. It was it was fine. You know, you need, mm. it need there needs to be that right ebb and flow. When we talked about uh, Alien Frontiers earlier, they had a mechanic in it, which we didn't talk about, which was the winner gets to read a little card and says how oh, they win. Yeah. And it's like, oh, you, you get in your space limousine and do a victory lap of the planet or whatever, which is like just a nice little little bit of narrative. I do actually wish more games did that, that the player who won gets to read something aloud. I mean, not that reading aloud is everyone's favorite thing, but just a tiny little event. I actually, here's a tip for people. In loads, most board games that we recommend seem to have people totting up scores at the end. What we like to do in our group, I think I borrowed this from someone else, is you get everyone to put their fists in the middle of the table or something and they all do a thumbs up and then you count up from zero. So it's like 10 points, 20, 30. And if players score didn't reach that, then they lower their thumb. And it's massively artificial. But what it does is create a little bit of uh, sort of excitement and tension over... Mm. 85, 86, 87, 88. Sold. Yeah, and then someone's thumb goes down and it's only one player left and you'll go, eh. You've accidentally bought a reclaimed yacht. 
And it's all right. It's all right. But it is hard. And it's a challenge I think designers should think about. Because if you can ace the beginning and end of a game, then you're halfway there, I reckon. Yeah, I think it's just the pace of it. And I think often it's funny how, um, in my mind, a criticism I will often have with, especially tends to be with like kind of more economic Euro games of feeling like, oh, I felt like I was just building up my machine and then it ended, Mm. Uh, which always feels annoying to me because I'm like, oh, I was just about to do some really cool stuff and then it was all over. But there's a lot to be said for that. Like always leave the audience wanting more. Like there's sometimes you feel like, Oh, if it had just gone on for a bit longer, cause I was having so much fun. Yes. And I think that's a lot of the games that do it well are ones that actually, we kind of come away from it feeling like outwardly, Oh, it's annoying because I, I wanted it to go on a bit longer. Exactly. Yeah. But actually like it's nailed it because it means that the last part of the game was exciting. Yeah. I talk about this a lot, but uh, for me, so much of a board game getting its sort of value across to you is whether not when you played it once, cause everyone plays a board game once, but when you put it back on the shelf do you have that lingering thing to be like i want to play it again and sometimes that might mean as you say that means the first game is a little less satisfying Mm. that's great if it means you play the game all over again and again just Mm -hmm. chasing that high assuming the game gives it to you eventually yeah it was like with pipeline i was like i want to make more money and then i made 912 dollars and i was like oh it feels so good (laughs) it feels so good hey uh speaking of pipeline we should give a brief shout out to some of our video reviews that we've done recently matt Mm. you reviewed pipeline i did uh it was a moment of madness and i do not regret it it's a tremendously dry game possibly the strangest video review i've done in a long time but i had so much fun making it i think it was like a celebration of shut up and sit down lunacy in the face of the most banal theme in the world (laughs) Yeah, some people did comment saying I didn't do the best job of explaining the game, which is partially true. I think I was just incredibly brief and terse with words I used, and it's sort of blink and you'll miss it games criticism. But if you listen to what I said, I think I'm pretty clear. It's just hard to listen to what I'm saying because I'm doing all sorts of bananas stuff. I love that. If that's like, it piques your interest. I mean, like, you get what you get. Like, sometimes you get quite a careful, considered piece of game criticism with not many jokes, and sometimes you just get more jokes than you could possibly comprehend. If people haven't seen your pipeline review, they should absolutely check it out. If you head to our YouTube channel, you can also see Matt's review of all the Comet expansions. Yeah, all the Comet you can possibly commit to. Comet Tarsetti um, and Comet Set. Yep, that's it. It always makes me feel like I'm I'm Tal-Seti pronouncing it set. wrong. You feel like you're just stumbling around with exactly, words. Exactly, yeah. But that's what they're called. Um, and really, I, I did a deep dive into those expansions, both of which are modular, and really came out of it discovering that for me, I'm not interested in either of the expansions, but I really love, love Base Comet. It's just... It's so much fun. It's the promise of what it, it... It is what it appears to be. And I've been playing lots of people on the map games recently. And Komet is one of the few ones where it is what it looks like. And it actually satisfies in the way that you expect it to. Which is something I'm finding a lot of modern games don't do. Rising Sun, the written review I did, certainly didn't feel like that. Lords of Hellas, I like but doesn't quite deliver on the promise of, of what it, it feels like it, it should be. I think Root is quite a good example of a game that sort of is what it looks like, in that it's sort of, it looks a bit like a war game, and it kind of is, it looks kind of yeah. like an ecosystem, and it is. It looks yeah. complicated. Oh, by Jesus, it is. Uh, meanwhile, while you've been reviewing all these big, heavy games, I reviewed tiny, tiny, maybe the tiniest box that I could. It was six, you got lucky in the B-roll department, yeah. Six nymphs, yeah, yeah. Let me the- tell you, filming B-roll for Comet and all the expansions. Some good B-roll, but my gosh. Actually, there's a reason to watch uh, your review of Comet, Matt, if people haven't seen it, or the Comet expansions, I should stress. I think it has the nicest B-roll, not just in a Shut Up and Sit Down review, but that I've ever seen oh. in a board game It's video. absolutely gorgeous, yeah, nice. you smashed it. Fun fact, I filmed about twice as much as I needed to because I was so scared of having to get it all out again. <laughs> 
<laughs> so I had loads of really nice shots that just didn't get used. My goodness. Oh, that's some lucky publishers there. Uh, speaking of lucky publishers, yeah, I loved Six Nymphed. Uh, I think it's caused a little, uh, it must have caused a bit of a sales explosion because uh, the German publishers who usually completely ignore us were tweeting in German about uh, my reviews. That's something. Uh, but yeah, Six Nymphed, lovely little card game. And like Matt's review of Pipeline, I had the challenge of making something incredibly boring seem as exciting as it was. It's a great game. Yeah, Six Nymphed is just ace. Uh, all right, everybody, that has been the 99th episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast. Oh, what does that mean? What's the next episode? The next episode, Matthew, is going to be, what did we decide, 99 and three quarters? 99 and three quarters. So here's the fun fact. Because we've got Shucks right around the corner, that's the official Shut Up and Sit Down convention, tickets are on sale now. If you want to go to uh, what a lot of people are saying is the best board game convention in the world, you can do that. And we will be recording the 100th ever episode of the Shut Up and Sit Down podcast at Shucks. But we've got another to record between now and then. So that will be 99 and three quarters. Do not adjust your podcast player. It's just how numbers work. No one knows why. Uh, Thank you very, very much for joining Matt and I, Ben. Uh, Thank you for having me. Continue to have me. Well, would you like to come back on the next podcast? I'd absolutely love to. I think there's plenty more stuff uh, we can play and that we have played that would be good to talk about. So yeah, that'd be a lot of fun. Hot dog. Well, I don't know if we have room for you, but... uh, We'll see see what the schedule looks like. Matt, do you think we have room? I don't know. I mean, I had to like get another chair in the room so someone else could sit down. It's been a lot of work. That chair is very light, but I'm incredibly weak and lazy. Uh, Well, let's talk about this after the podcast thank you very much for listening everybody say bye okay bye